Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs, guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. All right. I am very excited today because my guest is Julie Ang, the co-founder of Voz.ai. For those of you who do not know, Voz is a consumer insights company breaking the long cycle times of market research to deliver agile research in just 24 hours. Thank you very much for being here, Julie. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Now, the way that I always start out with every single founder that I meet, I'm always fascinated to understand the founding story. So take me back. What was the impetus? Yeah. So I want to take you back to one day five years ago in KL. So we meet the founders. Uh, we meet each other in a hackathon. So, you know, we heard a lot of stories saying teams that comes up from hackathon never survive much, you know, one year after the hackathon. Uh, we are the exception. Uh, so we met each other in the hackathon. And that time, we all we wanted is simple. We want to win the prize at the end of 54 hours. Now, I'm going to spoil the ending because we did not win the prize, uh, but we are the last company still standing until today. Uh, so during <laughs> that first day of Hackathon, first night, we are thinking about, you know, what ideas do we need in order to win the prize, right? Uh, we started with a finance idea, but a few key research in Google suggested that, you know, some people are doing it and we are not very sure our angle is much better. So we decided to switch uh, to a new idea. So the founders think that the beanbag in the hackathon start to brainstorm about what's the next big idea to work on. One hour gone past, we cannot align on a single idea. Now, we all come from different backgrounds. Obviously, we have differing opinions. Uh, but one thing we agree on, no one, back, no one has the data to back up what they are saying that the idea is going to be good. So we realized and decided we need data. So we're sitting there in a place where there are 300 participants of Hackathon. And we ask ourselves, how do we get the data? Well, why not we follow what Steve Blank said? Get out of the building. So literally talk to the other Hackathon participants and just get vote for your idea. So with that time, we say, simple. You go out and ask people whether or not they're interested in your idea. Whoever earned the most vote, we do your idea. No question asked. So we start walking around, talking to different participants, getting votes for our idea. Shortly after a few conversations, we noticed something weird. We are the only one who walk around and do this. And we start talking to them and say, oh, hey, uh, you know, why are you not doing, you know, research like us, asking people about your ideas? Are you so confident with your idea? And then turns out what they say is, oh, no, uh, we are not confident. It's just I am not enough time. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know if this is important. That gave us a single alignment around the founders. So we noticed that people do not know how to validate the idea. And we thought, wait, this is an idea. Why not we help people to do it? 
So that is how we founded the idea around WAS. We started as, why not we provide a service to help you validate your idea? And let's call it validation as a service. Now, if we take this forward validation as a service and the first capital of each of the forwards is V-A-A-S. And that's how we pronounce WAS. Uh, uh, long story short, VAAS is bad for SEO, so we change it into VASE, hoping it gives us better SEO. Turns out it also not, but that is how we started. I I, lo I love that because basically you by trying to figure out find a problem and a solution you end up just kind of naturally stumbling upon it as you were realizing that you needed validation you went out through the market uh, started interviewing people out of curiosity how many of you were there at that point in time three okay so we and actually started with three co-founders. Okay. Okay. Very cool. And so do you still have any contact with the person that won just to kind of rub it in the face a little bit and that, Hey, we're still standing, even though you got the prize. Uh, so I mean, kind of people, but uh, we, we are secretly <laughs> proud. And then it was some of sometimes, you know, when we are like, you know, Friday night drinking alcohol together, celebrating, you know, the years as fast, uh, we do, we do give ourselves cheers. The judge has missed us out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, no, I, th I think that's a that's a generally a good lesson for most founders out there that just because initial success, it doesn't mean long-term success. And so it's a marathon, not a sprint. So I think there's a, there's a lot of different analogies that could get tossed onto it. So I'm curious, let, let's let's fast forward. So after the hackathon, then you want to take this, this product and run with it. What were the next steps? How did you end up going out to market and getting your first customers, getting that first feedback and, and trying to figure out, can you sustain this? Yes. Um, so I start with the first feedback. Uh, we are really lucky to have met our first ever mentor in the hackathon as well. So the mentor introduces us actually to Maybank. Um, it doesn't materialize into a deal, but it gives us tons of feedback that gives us validation that someone in the market might want a product like ours. So uh, we started to get a lot more feedback to just LinkedIn, um, LinkedIn connect with people, getting out for a coffee uh, and chat with them about it. So we got positive feedback and based on those feedback, we actually went on and do two things. So ultimately, what's the marketplace? We are a marketplace between getting consumers database, collecting those opinions and supply it to business. So we thought this is a chicken and egg problem, right? Where do we start? So we start with the respondents. We start with actually rolling out a referral mechanism to try to recruit respondents. Um, we tried a lot of different things, including a lot of hacky stuff. Uh, but long story short, in a few months time, we have accumulated a significant number of respondents. So we talked to ourselves, oh, yes, you know, we, we, we get one side of the chicken and egg problem sort of figured out. Now we want to figure out the next one. So we talked to startup founders about their pain point around validating idea. Why are we talking to startup founders? Because this idea starts from Hackathon. And because of that, we thought at that moment, we're going to serve startup founders. We're going to democratize the power of market research to startups who have no resources. Uh, I think a lot of people might know where that story ended. So it turns out, you know, <laughs> they don't have budget to, to, to do that. But nevertheless, that was how we started. With that feedback, we built a product, a tech product. Now, that was one of our first key mistakes that we make. Um, you know, we thought we built it, people will come. We built it, people don't come. Uh, 
And at that moment, uh, something happened. So we have been putting on website to showcase the idea that we can help you to validate your idea. One enterprise company left us an email through our website. Uh, it was Pepsi. We were so excited. We can't sleep that day. Uh, so Pepsi asked us this few questions. First, oh, so you guys do market research. And we were like, yes, we do market research. <laughs> but actually, that time we were just using the word market uh, validation, idea validation, right? That was the time when we realized more and more enterprise are the one who actually are looking actively for market research and actually have the budget around it. So uh, eventually, um, how do we get our first customers? Uh, I would say the startup ones is through LinkedIn. You know, just chat with them, connect. Some startup wonders want to want to try it but eventually it was actually serendipity moment where people landed on our website okay and so how has that now evolved because now you get the realization that enterprise is the segment that has the capacity to pay because you know startups without the resources it's it sounds great to target them but yeah. when you start looking at targeting enterprises it's not as straightforward because there's an high, there's a hierarchy, there's a purchase behavior. How did you go about initially trying to crack open that market? We are very lucky to have met DG. Um, so they have an accelerator ongoing that time. Uh, we apply for it. Uh, we apply for it mainly because that time we start learning about enterprise and I'm fully agreement. We, we know enterprise is a tough, uh, tough problem to crack. So we thought by associating ourselves with Digital Accelerator, we can get to know more about how to crack the market. Uh, going to Accelerator, associating with DG helped us to actually get introduction to a lot more enterprises. Uh, I personally went on to the meeting, each one of them, uh, and that is how we get started and by talking to them and knowing what they need. So turns out what I found is one key thing. Um, market research has been an industry that has been there. It's not new, if you think about it. So actually, a lot of uh, companies, researchers or marketers, they aren't really being treated as in there's new innovative stuff. They are just business as usual. So when we as a startup came in and talked to them saying, hey, tell me about your pain points. I really want to help you. Just share with me. I have a better product. Can you try for me? They are super open. So this, I think, is one thing I found really key. Uh, we thought people wouldn't necessarily want to talk to us because we are small. But individually-wise, they are actually very open to share feedback. And with that, um, we definitely, uh, one of our key um, research mentor uh, is, uh, is our ex-DG uh, researcher, main researcher. And she was the one who, you know, shared with us a lot of uh, things. Uh, we definitely also dedicated a lot of resources to helping DG as well as part of the, you know, the give and take. Mm -hmm. So that's how we started and, and learned more about this market. So the Digi Accelerator really gave you a kind of a captive client to really pick their brain. Now, before, before jumping into that, so Digi is the tel telecom operator, yeah? That's, that's, yes. that's there. So they have a large retail customer base. They, they likely have a vast pool of information and are constantly trying to understand their behavior. So when you had those one-on-one -on -one conversations with the researcher, you were really getting a solid understanding of a retail-oriented company's viewpoint on market research, yeah? Yes, yes. So I, I definitely really appreciate that connection. And I think uh, we learned that 
at the beginning, if you're targeting enterprise client, it's very important to have a really strong relationship with at least you know one or two enterprises uh, and build the product together. Okay. Okay. That's that's fantastic. And so one of the things that I always hear from most companies is that the challenges of getting your first few customers evolves as you start trying to scale it up and get more and more and more because the challenge and the access and so forth, you start having to build systems. What was your experience in going from working with Digi there, having that captive audience, and then having to go go out into the wild, for lack of a better way of putting it, and start trying to land additional enterprise clients? Uh, you're right. You're right. So uh, we actually start from really high one-to-one touch points um, and definitely higher deal size as well in response to that. To eventually, when we want to scale up, what we did was we uh, we look at what are the levers that we can activate. And we realized one, uh, one thing about our industry is that uh, we have data. <laughs> so we leverage the power of data itself to help us market. So we started to launch what we call the data trust, which is in other words, industry reports. Uh, that was one of the more successful marketing campaigns that we do. Uh, we definitely do a lot of stuff as well that doesn't really go much. Uh, but uh, we realized people start liking free data. And through that, they will be happy to subscribe as our newsletter subscribers and with that we can start engage with them so uh until current we are still working on uh working on evolving that system itself uh right now we are we are uh, experimenting more with webinar so other than uh the industry report because the industry report just help people to see what we can potentially help them to do but we noticed that a lot more potential clients need a lot more education about why agile research is important mm-hmm. and the best way to do that is by webinar presentation so uh in our most um recent webinar we have 400 participants uh, sorry 400 registrants uh from different countries in southeast asia so uh that is one of the way that we are consistently trying to iterate upon our system to to scale the brand awareness in the way that we can't necessarily do it in one-to-one having said that we do see when we want to nurture them and eventually have a touch point to convert them into customers, the one-to-one need to come into play. So if I were to use the funnel, I think we are scaling it in terms of top of funnel and middle of the funnel, but the bottom of the funnel still need still need personal touch points in order to better help the clients. And that personal touch point, do you, you think that's a factor of the familiarity with how to uh, accomplish the tasks, to use the software, or does it also come into an aspect of price point as well, that higher price point uh, targets oftentimes require a little bit more of a personal touch? Mm, um, both. And I would actually put in another one, culture. Okay. So um, we do notice in perhaps Southeast Asia, uh, Market research has been some market research industry has been something that people pay to get service upon rather than self-serve. Whereas when I see uh markets like Australia, uh US or UK, they're actually much more lean towards self-serve, even though their pricing could be high. So uh with this culture uh in the background, we are trying to educate the power of being able to self-serve. Uh, but definitely, secondly, the pricing point uh, that we are working on is in the middle of not cheap enough to self-serve 
but not expensive enough to have a dedicated account manager. So, so I think we are kind of in a in a in a middle point over there. We are also trying to figure out what's scalable for our own company, but at the same time, makes sense for our client. Okay. Okay. Now, another thing that I'm curious about, because in 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 a lot of software companies, a lot of SaaS companies, at the at the beginning, there's oftentimes kind of like a outside consultant or a managed service model where you're rolling up your sleeves and doing a lot more manual labor for each individual client until you come to the realization that hey, I can templatize this, I can I can create additional tech tools. Did you experience a similar thing when looking at uh, looking at your business? Oh, hundred uh, percent. This brings me to a a recent announcement that we did early this year. So uh, after our hackathon, after we realized you know our customers enterprises, um, after our first launch of our tech product and fail, uh, we decided to roll our sleeve and just do just work with client very closely and manually came up with what they need. Uh, we did that for years. Through that years, uh, after accomplishing 300 projects, um, we actually go and sift through it and find the patterns. Uh, we segment down into different industry use case uh, and so on. Uh, last year, we went into launching a product that is templatized based on those patterns. Uh, and we started to see adoption rate. And we start convincing our clients who has been using us for consulting to try to move on to our another model. Some do, some didn't. Uh, but after rolling up for a few months, we recognize what's our company identity. I think other than the market share that we are going after, we need to really recognize our own company identity, which is what type of company are we really trying to build here? So we do associate ourselves more with the self-serve, guided self-serve platform model. So early this year in January, we decided that let's focus. We cannot do two things at once. So we decided to actually sunset our consulting model and uh, 100% fully focus behind our guided self-serve. Now, that was the time where in hindsight, it felt like, of course, we should do that. But that time, no. Um, more than 70% of our revenue are still come from consulting. So making that decision in early this year, January, is like saying, Oh, do you gonna say just say bye bye to the seventy percent revenue? Uh, and now you know, fast forward eight months later this year, we recognize that was the single most important decision that we have made in the entire history of our company. Uh, now we are almost. We believe that this year we're gonna rip up hundred percent of that, the so called revenue that we may mm -hmm. have lost this year itself, uh, but with much less resources on our company. I have to imagine that that that's got to be an incredibly scary decision, not just from the revenue standpoint, but within the company culture of the sales team, the human resources that you have on 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 accomplishing all of those uh, consulting uh, managed service model. When you think about doing that change, kind of like the before and after, in hindsight, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, but would you do it the same or is there anything that you would adjust in that transition period? Mm. Um, the decision will stay the same, but I will probably make our communication much better. So uh, you, you definitely pointed out, right? Uh, we did a lot of town hall just to revolve around why are we doing this? 
But I think what we can do, definitely do better, is actually more one-to-one into each person to actually visualize how their role is going to change. What does that mean to their day-to-day? How, what are the skills that they need to actually upskill further as we make the shift? Uh, fast forward to now, uh, we kind of firefight with those things that I mentioned um, individually as individually of them realize, oh, I need to do something more. I need to do this more. Oh, this has changed, right? So at that moment of time, in the, in the first six months, we actually, when things happen with the, the team member, we work with them directly. But it does feel like this is something we could have prepared upfront to prepare them for the change. So what we did realize is we prepared the company for the change, but we don't really prepare the individual person for the change. Okay, okay. Yeah, that, that's 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 an important part. But on on the company level, I re- I really like what you were talking about. How you analyze the customer behavior, you analyzed all of the data that you had on the types of work that was being done, categorizing it, really digging through it and understanding the trend lines so that when you did try and create more standardization and and transition to a self-serve model, you had a lot of data points in order to guide of what has been working so far and leveraging it towards building out ultimately the future product. Yeah. Uh, Yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, we have tons of product. Oh, sorry, we have tons of data. The part that I think no is this. Um, the macro environment changed, you know, with COVID and everything, it changes. Mm. So sometimes when we look back at the trend line, we ask ourselves, is this still valid? Uh, uh. And doing the consumer research ourselves, we know that we, we are telling our customer because we can see the trend line for consumer. Literally, things are just different month to month sometimes. Uh, sometimes when the government policy is in flux. So that also makes us question ourselves is this data that we look at still valid for this decision making at this point? Uh, uh, sometimes in that sense, we'll try to remind each other, I know we are a data company. I know we are all researcher, but are we all analyzing at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> a good balance to be taken. C- certainly, certainly. I mean, the, 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 the pandemic ended up causing a lot of different changes, but in general, with the pace of, uh, with the pace of changes in consumer behavior, the market in general is moving very fast. So I think what you just stated of an internally looking process is the same thing that most enterprises are going through on a regular basis, where they're constantly wondering whether or not conditions are the same and wondering what are my consumers thinking? What do they want? Right? Yes. Yes. Same. So, so, uh, so we are always also wondering and also ask our, our client, what do they want? Does it change uh, over time in order to help us strengthen the data point we have when we are, when we are changing the business? And so out in the market right now, as far as consumer research, what does a typical enterprise have as their existing options? Is it in-house? Is it, you know, like a Nielsen or one of those types of players? What what are their options? Mm -hmm. Uh, Generally, I would would categorize it into three three types. One, uh, if the enterprise has budget, usually they will have some sort of Nielsen, Kanta, Ipsos in place as their partner. Uh, second, they would also nest, might be subscribing to what we call the syndicated report, uh, reports that already uh, not controlled by them, but is something that uh, is general industry report that they can subscribe to for generic information. Or they subscribe to companies like social listening platform uh, to tap a little bit on the pulse. Uh, 
Uh, the third type is in-house, uh, but in-house they also use tools like perhaps survey monkey uh, and things like that, or else the in-house is gonna use back the same uh, the same alternative like Nielsen and so on. So that are generally the three types of alternative they have currently. And so where do you fit within that mix? Uh, as far as supplement, replacement, crossing the bridge, how do you play into this market? Mm, mm. Um, what, what we see ourselves is really supplement. Um, and uh, we definitely see that we are also in replacement for people who are looking for more reliable data. Okay, uh, let me give you an example. Um, a typical traditional research probably needs two to three months time to give you back a report. In the current macro environment, two to three months is goal. And once a report back to me, I might see it as not, death, not, not valid data anymore. So in order for the client to actually move in the pace that consumer are using, uh, they need agile research. Now, the three alternatives that I mentioned just now are not really options for agile research. That's where the supplement comes in. If the company are looking to be agile research, are looking to keep pace with the consumer, uh, they will need to add us as the fourth tool. Mm. Uh, and for those who have been using SurveyMonkey or Google Form, uh, in-house, uh, what we found with our client is um, they need to do a lot more work. Uh, those are very low pricing points, uh, low variable low pricing points options. However, they internally actually need to incur a lot more costing. So uh, sometimes uh, when they are looking at it to optimize uh, their internal productivity better, we will come as potentially a replacement of choice to those tools so that they can save their time just getting data and insights from us. Okay. Okay. And so when you look, uh, shifting a little bit to more of a forward looking outlook, when you look at defining success as a product or an organization, how do you define that today? And has that evolved over time? Mm, um, in the past, we actually define success from revenue. Uh, currently, we define success as number of deals. So the changes that we have is we switch from revenue-based to impact-based. What do I mean by impact-based? How many brands have we helped? How many research projects have we successfully helped to launch? How many respondents have we helped to earn money? So uh, we switch the success criteria of our organization as we move from consulting model uh, to a platform model uh, because for a platform model, uh, we notice that just using revenue base uh, doesn't necessarily be able to capture our velocity. So sometimes you could have a few, just a few customers, but they're spending a lot and you feel like, you know, you have achieved your target. But actually, we are not really increasing the market share a lot if we are not having, um, you know, higher number of deals. That's the reason why we started to uh, move away from revenue base to number of deals. 
Okay, so it's it's re- it's really kind of sh- that's a that's a, that's kind of a shift in the organization of looking more at the deal level as opposed to revenue. I, I imagine most startups out there are oftentimes really focused in on revenue. Most investors, honestly, oftentimes are as well. But when you mm. look at the deal side, is the logic behind the impact that if you can execute on the deals, that it creates a, an additional inertia behind it to where you can start getting some of those growth loops going, getting the stickiness amongst the existing brands, while also demonstrating value and creating a a magnet, a lead magnet in order to draw more people into the platform. Yep, you, you are exactly right. Uh, the reason why we asked ourselves why move from revenue-based to deal-based, right? Um, we realized if you take the concept of flywheel, uh, and we see that this success metrics is the output that we want to chase for. Uh, if you if you ask ourselves what are the levers we can move to increase number of deals, a lot more things that include increased quality of uh, deliverables, increase uh, number of MQL, number of leads, uh, increased conversion rate, increased user experience, all come into play. However, when we ask ourselves just increase revenue base, a lot of times people focusing on let's get the sales to upsell. <laughs> so <laughs> that was one of the main reasons we realized um, if we move into impact base, it seems to be able to capture a lot more levers mm-hmm. uh, to input into the flywheel. And we believe that the score will take care of itself. If we put in more deals in it, the revenue will take care of itself. It doesn't mean that we don't care about revenue. It's just uh, we just don't see how we can brainstorm a lot more levers if we are revenue focused rather than focus. Yeah, I, th- I think that logic makes perfect sense. But uh, but I wonder when you when you shift the metric that way, how do you end up managing the sales team? Because oftentimes they're commission based. You know, they're they're out there trying to do the whale hunting. They want the large contract size. They want to go out there. So how was there a mentality shift, a culture shift within the organization, or how do you atta- how do you attack that from a HR stand management standpoint? Ah, this is like one of the key conundrum we face, like super key. Um, it is tough, <laughs> but uh, we paint the big picture. So we ask ourselves uh, or have this internal discussion. If you imagine us chasing higher deal size, how long the sales cycle going to be? It's definitely going to be longer. Uh, how much effort you're going to need to put in as a sales rep? It's definitely more. Uh, but when you switch it up, and says, but we can have technology to help sales as well. So if we use technology to help sales as well, we can actually achieve the same amount of higher revenue, but break it down into a smaller amount of deal with a smaller amount of deal size. So we painted that bigger picture to the sales rep to help them to see that the pie is much bigger when we switch. Uh, okay, however, that is not easy to do. Uh, that because that switch of seeing the bigger pie will only happen in the mid to long run, not the short run. So short run, yes, commission going to take a hit. Uh, so it's about getting people who are aligning with the, the objective of the company and believing in the future of the company. That is the make or break of it. So uh, I would say we are not perfect at this, uh, but we try very best to hire and taking people who believe in the vision believe in the idea that uh, WAS is there to help democratize the power of research rather than just holding and be, you know, get more and more revenue than that's it. Um, and we tend to see people who believe in the vision will then support and put in the hard work 
in an effort to wait for the mid to long run when the pie gets bigger and things get more scalable. So the second point to this is it can, sales, cannot, sales will need people to support it in terms of automation. So if you're asking sales, hey, just go close more deals and you know you have a you have a uh, you have a point where you have a minimum amount of deals to go with, and then they will feel unfair. Mm. So marketing need to do the job, product team need to do the job, customer success team need to do the job. So I think it's a teamwork effort over here. Yeah, you really need to align the entire organization behind these goals in order to get the movement to it. One thing you mentioned was about hiring, and I wanna I wanna understand, you know. Most times the the hiring behavior evolves over time as you learn as an organization of your own culture, how to judge the fits. How has your hiring process evolved over time? And if you had hindsight looking back, what are what are some of the key things that you have fixed uh, in the process? Mm, um, well, it's still a learning thing. It's still a work in progress. But there are a few things that we uh, that we have found out that is, is very important to us. Uh, one, be super intentional about the types of traits uh, that we hope the new hire uh, have. Uh, there are traits that we won't be able to teach and there are traits that we're able to teach. Uh, we need to, so one of the key learning we've passed is that we list down um, the traits that is non-negotiable and the traits that is a bonus to us. Uh, that oftentimes help us to weed out a lot more candidates at the beginning stage to for interviews mm-hmm. um second um we also want to be intentional about the role that we are looking to hire is that role a from scratch they need to figure it out they need to come in and problem solve it or that is a role that is pretty structured already uh whereby they just come in uh learn as fast as possible uh do it apply it and then optimize upon it we notice that these two types of role takes a very different types of people and previously what the mistake we did was um we hired people who are very good at you know building on top of things to start and come and start from scratch and that doesn't work out uh and vice versa if we bring in people who have the motivation to start from scratch and put them in a role that is already figured out they feel bored and eventually left mm-hmm. uh so uh, those are the, the two key takeaways that over the time we realize that we need to be really intentional about in order to get the right candidate. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes a lot of a, a lot of sense, and I think that's an incredible point of being quite specific of what you are trying, what the skills and and objectives that you're trying to hire for, so that as you're reviewing these candidates, you have a very clear lens by which to judge and select who is the most appropriate fit, right? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. Uh, Let me shift again to the closing questions, the questions that I ask everyone. The first one of these is, what is the tech tool that you cannot live without? Uh, Coming from me will be HubSpot. (laughs) I day in, yeah, I look at the metrics over in HubSpot. So uh, yeah, that's, that's one that I probably wouldn't be able to live without. Fantastic. And if you were to speak to another startup founder out there, what is the biggest piece of advice that you can offer from your own experience? Mm. Um, Building a flywheel that's centered around making sure that every single client is getting value. Uh, Oftentimes when we try to draw a flywheel around what are the input and the output metrics that flow together, 
we often see that if we just make sure every single client has get is getting value, uh, the the entire firewall will fly gracefully. Because when client is happy, we get more word of mouth, we get more recurring clients. We can then use them, uh, working with them to build case studies. Then we can use the case studies to further as a content to attract other new clients and then other clients users and they are happy and, and so forth. All right. I, th I, think that, I think that's a fantastic piece of advice for everyone out there. Make sure that your customers are getting value, number one, because everything else in your business kind of revolves around that. You won't get more customers if you're not delivering value. This was amazing, Julie. I really appreciate you being here. Before I let you go, for anybody out in the audience that is interested in learning more about Vaz or getting in touch with you personally, how can they connect with you? Yeah, I am available on LinkedIn. Um, so uh, just search me on LinkedIn or else uh, you can reach me out at my email, julie at was.ai. Thank okay. you so much for having me, Kevin. Perfect. Thank you. All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of The Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin from Indelible Ventures, and this is The Sea of Startups.